so when I got to know Duff, I went to his house, me and Jeff Rouse, the bass player in Loaded, and he read his life story in front of us while we played guitars and like, just kind of worked out that whole thing. Okay, maybe this song would go here, right? And so I'm getting to know this guy in his living room, telling me his life story, like officially, you know what I mean? That was wild, man. Really, really cool. Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Jeff Fielder is on the show. Jeff has been a professional musician for 25 years, serving as musical director for Mark Lanigan and as the guitarist and co-producer for Amy Ray of Indigo Girls. Jeff also landed a touring guitarist gig with Indigo Girls and has collaborated with local Seattle legends like Stone Gossard of Pearl Jam and Duff McKagan of Guns N' Roses, among many others. In addition to touring internationally, Jeff contributed to the musical score on the film Hickok, starring Chris Christopherson, and contributed intro music for the Seattle Seahawks. He was also an integral part of Paul Allen's band collective, The Underthinkers, trading guitar leads with Paul and guests like Joe Walsh, Dave Grohl, and Derek Trucks, among others. Jeff has also appeared on Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown and performed in Duff McKagan's concert film, It's So Easy. When I saw Jeff perform in Seattle recently with Alan Johannes, he referred to himself as the Forrest Gump of rock and roll. And although I got a chuckle out of his comment, as I researched and prepared for this interview, this characterization actually made a lot of sense. As you'll hear in this interview, Jeff has had enough musical adventures to film multiple lives throughout his career, and he's still going strong. In addition to all of his international touring gigs, session gigs, and impressive collaborations, he has a solo album called The Last Disguise, showcasing a wide range of acoustic, folk, and blues-based songs, as well as slide guitar-infused rock. Everybody knows you've been discreet So many people you just had to meet Jeff also writes and records with his wife, musician Tecla Waterfield. Their most recent album, released this year, is called Trouble in Time. In this wide-ranging interview, we cover Jeff's journey into music, how he made so many connections in the Pacific Northwest music scene in the early 90s and 2000s, and where his comfort zone is between being a songwriter, frontman, touring guitarist, session guitarist, producer, and collaborator. So without further ado, let's jump into my chat with Jeff Fielder. Jeff Fielder, welcome to Dream Path Podcast. How do you do, sir? Oh, I'm great. Other than the wildfire smoke here in Yakima, we are oh my gosh in basically ground zero, belly of the beast for some pretty big fires. And so if I cough, I'm going to try to mute myself if I cough into the mic, but uh, that's, <laughs> that's why it's not COVID. Well, you know, keep it real. You know? <laughs> right. uh, Yakima. Yeah. That's where you're at. I was going to ask you where you were. Yeah, I'm sure. mostly in Yakima. I have a, an office in Seattle and a home in Seattle. But most of my family's here. My kids are here. So I try to mm -hmm. 
cool. operate out of Yakima as much as I can, as much as much as I can tolerate it. But definitely have it. <laughs> yeah. I prefer the West Side vibe for sure. <laughs> but you have rural roots yourself. I understand that you Oh yeah. You hail from Alaska. Yes, sir. Yeah. The big state, the last frontier. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what do you it. remember about Alaska? How old were you when you left that state and and how formative was it for you? I highly recommend growing up in Alaska. <laughs> and then I also highly recommend getting out of Alaska eventually. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, it's beautiful up there is the thing. And then, so I was there until I was uh, 12, I think, 12 or 13, right in there. Mm-hmm. Summer between seventh and eighth grade. Yeah. Oh, nice. And uh, yeah, I was in Eagle River first, which is outside of Anchorage. So th- that was the area we were in, kind of the Anchorage area. And then Wasilla next. Outside the big city. Yeah, the big, big city, um, <laughs> which was pretty small. We went back recently because my wife is also from there. I didn't know her back then, but, you know, it just happenstance. But, um, huh. yeah, so we went back together and visited my brothers and whatnot. And I'm glad we got that trip in. That was in September of 2019. Oh, yeah. Right under the wire. Right under the wire, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, no, I loved it there. And I remember it really, really, really fondly and well. I, I have a, kind of a crazy memory. So I remember my childhood like a lot, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, I really, uh, I really dug it. It was funny. We had like pen pals in, um, in grade school uh, from somewhere else. I think like the East Coast maybe. And they all assumed like kids, you know, that were our age. Um, and they all assumed that we lived in igloos and you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> had penguins everywhere, you know? That's funny. They were, they were surprised to learn that we had Taco Bells and whatnot. I'm, this is the first time hearing that you did not live in igloos. So <laughs> thank, thanks for clarifying. Yeah. No, I had that same belief growing up in Washington State, in, anywhere close to the North Pole, like Alaska. Right. Even though Alaska is not that close to the North Pole. But yeah, you always think of uh, those tropes. Yeah. So in terms of your musical formation, when did that start? Did that start in Alaska or did you, oh, did yeah. you pick up music later? Yeah, it's just one of those things that was just, um, you know, I was into it as, a, as soon as I could do anything, you know, as soon as I could talk or whatever. I was just musical somehow, you know, and I'm not sure why. It doesn't really run in the family or anything. Although I had older brothers that all played, it was just kind of part of the culture then, uh, but it, not particularly a musical family. Besides our sort of brood, you know, everybody played uh, in my immediate family. Mm-hmm. There was a fiddle guy. His name was Jimmy Fielder back in the early 1900s. That was the fiddle champion of Texas, apparently. Wow. But other than him, it kind of skipped all those next generations <laughs> till it landed on us. And I understand your family goes back to Texas, right? I mean, you have deep, yeah, deep yeah, roots yeah. in Texas as well. Texas. Yeah. Yeah. yeah all around there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so your musical education, did you ever have any formal music education or was it all like uh, guitar lessons and playing and collaborating with, with other folks to learn? Um, well, yes and no. I'm sort of, I would consider myself almost self-taught, but I did have guitar lessons when I was nine. I kind of started as like sort of after school stuff, you know, and I had this kind of, uh, there was a music school, a kind of a music store slash school in the middle of Eagle River. It's very, very small and uh, community-oriented. Um, and the, my guitar teacher was this kind of church lady. She wore these big, long dresses and would do kind of nursery rhyme type stuff. I very much disliked it. But I did it. I was, I was um, you know, 
I wouldn't say I was forced to do it, but you know, I was, you know, I was supposed to practice every day for 30 minutes or whatever. And then I had the lesson every week and I did that for about, I don't know. I don't know exactly, maybe six, seven months, something like that. And I knew my way around the guitar by the end of that. Mm -hmm. Although I really didn't enjoy it because I didn't identify with any of the music we were doing, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then eventually I sort of graduated to a new teacher and I had him for a very short time, but he was kind of a metalhead. I went from one extreme to the other <laughs> and he was teaching me like docking and, uh, wow. and rat. I remember learning round and round on my little, my little nylon string round <laughs> like, and round yeah i could rock round and round what comes around goes around yeah that's a great yeah. song <laughs> yeah that's a good tune i used to roller skate to that song yeah man and then I, and then and then we moved away from that town so i i stopped lessons and that's when i took it up kind of seriously after that because i knew my way around it and then i was well into music by then and so then I started, and there's nothing else to do in Alaska, and I didn't ski or play hockey or anything like that, you know what I mean? So the winters were very long, mm -hmm. and I just found myself in my room by myself playing guitar all the time, mm -hmm. you know, all night long. Yeah. yeah. Well, it sounds like the lack of people, the lack of metropolitan inner city, you know, population, which provides a lot of opportunities for social experiences, kind of worked to your favor in terms of like keeping you focused on something because what else is there to do if you're not playing hockey or doing some other outdoor sport? Right. Yeah. You know, and I was young enough to be, you know, I was always, I always had a lot of friends. I wasn't too antisocial and it wasn't really that, you know, I do, it wasn't that small of a town. It was still a, you know, there was people everywhere, you know, we had a big school and everything. Mm -hmm. It was pretty normal as far as I could tell, you know, it's kind of like, if I could compare it to anything, it'd be kind of like, it'd be kind of like Texas, <laughs> some of the smaller towns outside of Austin, maybe, you know, mm -hmm. and it was like, it was really laid back, man. Everybody was really chill back then, you know what I mean? So it was a pretty easy, easy going, you know, I had, a, I had a nice, easy relative childhood, you know, just kind of just moving right along, just playing guitar and mm -hmm. digging on Masters of the Universe or whatever I was into, you know, it was kind of this weird transition from comic books into rock and roll, you know. Comic books, yeah. I, I remember Silver Surfer and, and a lot of- Totally. I collected comic books, but I never read them. Right. I was never, I was into more of the, the, the imagery and things like that, but mm -hmm. I was, um, you know, what a failure in terms of a comic book geek. If you're not into the literary aspect of it, I felt like I was just a poser. Well, I read them, but I was more into the art too. In fact, I could have gone that way. I wasn't, you know, I, I still, it's been a minute because it, it, music kind of took over in the last decade or so. But um, I also draw, like, you know, I was pretty well into it. And there was a period where I felt like I could be a cartoonist or some sort of comic artist. Hmm. I'm still really quite into that stuff. These are mine up here. But back then, yeah, you can't really see them. They're way back there. But um, back then, yeah, I could have, because I drew, you know, I was into drawing the superheroes and all that stuff. And so when it went into rock and roll, it was very, um, you know, because Jimi Hendrix and Jimmy Page, they were so flamboyant in the way they dressed and all that stuff. They seemed like superheroes to me, kind of. So it was a very seamless mm. transition. <laughs> okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you have these icons and these heroes that we look up to. And mm -hmm. um, certainly, you know, Metallica, and I understand Ozzy Osbourne was an influence for you and Randy Rhodes. And I just unbelievable. Yeah. These people that become our heroes, you know, they're just people we look up to and want to emulate. Yeah. Yeah. I love Ozzy, man. <laughs> I really do. How did your parents respond to those types of musical influences? Were they pretty 
you know, supportive or did you have parents that were a little more conservative and, you know, trying to discourage you from at least listening to the records backwards? <laughs> you know? No, there was nothing like that. <laughs> what happened with me, it was interesting, actually. I have three older brothers that were way older than me. They were all teenagers when I was born. Um, so I had these three older guys around. And um, so they were kind of an influence as far as just like them being themselves, you know, long hair and bell bottoms and cool cars. And they had guitars and things like that. You know what I mean? My, my brother had a Challenger, orange Challenger. Nice. Unbelievable. You know, they were just cool dudes, you know. So when they were kids, when they were little kids in Texas growing up, and this is in like, you know, the early 60s. It was like super religious. They were like Southern Baptist. And it was very strict in the household back then. Same parents, by the way. And so by the time they were teenagers, they completely rebelled against all that stuff. And it was a little bit tricky for, the, for my mom and dad. So when they had me, and then I, had a, I have a younger sister too, when they had us, they were just like, mm, okay, we know not to do that. So we were like <laughs> really free of all that kind of stuff. Oh, nice. And as far as them, you know, once I got into music... Then yeah, they were fully supportive, especially my mom. Now my dad was kind of more of like you know you know get a job and do something, but he was not discouraging music. He knew I had a kind of a talent for it or whatever. So there was certainly no discouraging. And as far as music goes, as far as like I think my dad secretly might have been like oh these whatever it was, <laughs> but they never bothered me about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. There, I remember seeing Kiss and stuff on uh, on TV and. It looking kind of scary, but they didn't really care. You know, by that point, it, they knew that, you know, yeah, whatever. So, no, they didn't bother me about it. <laughs> so, by the time you land in Washington State, I assume you went straight from Alaska to Washington. Yeah. So, by the time you get to Washington, it, it sounds like you're pretty immersed in musical, like, education, not formal education, but at least that's your thing, is music and guitar. Is that accurate oh yeah certainly and bass and bass i had a i had a music teacher in uh in junior high that was very influential on me and he taught me how to play bass and i played drums in concert band and that was the, probably the as far as like early days that was the biggest growth i ever had and he was a very influential teacher on me he was probably the, the most certainly and maybe one of the only because <laughs> when i moved to uh, washington i don't know i'm sure my school had good teachers but I didn't, I didn't have any of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My school, I don't know. So they weren't inspiring you academically? Not at, in the least. They didn't really take an interest in, you know, me or, uh, you know, a lot of the kids. It was so much, I had never seen school like that because in, in Alaska, everything was really together and you could have all these different groups, you know, mm -hmm. and we had a lot of, it was a little bit different because there's a lot of native people in Alaska. But it was all really integrated and nobody really broke off into these groups like, you know, these, you know, everybody had their own thing. Like there would be a rocker and a jock and a blah, 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 and a prep or whatever. But we all got along. And then in, in, in Washington, everything was very clicky. And man, I didn't have one. <laughs> you know what I mean, I couldn't find a place. So those were tricky years. And the teachers were kind of the same way. They had their favorite kids or whatever. So when I tried to get into music programs, they just kind of literally laughed at me. Mm. And I'm like, all right, man, you know, whatever. So I feel like that kind of stunted my growth in a lot of ways, which is, it was a little bit of a bummer. Yeah. But I don't hold any grudges, you know, whatever. It's all good. <laughs> but I, I, I could read music up to that point. And when I didn't continue that into like actual school, music school, they wouldn't even let me in the band, you know, which was really weird. I just thought that was weird. I think it's because I had long hair and I just didn't match the, mm. you know, whatever they wanted. You know, it, was, it just really bummed me out at the time. So I kind of ended up, did kind of rebelling against all those teachers and all that stuff, you know. Yeah. But I was a good kid. I wasn't like too much of a mess. 
<laughs> well, you're you're such an aficionado. I mean, you're you're, you're such a uh, an amazing guitarist in terms of like blues and jazz influences. And so you're a great lead guitarist, you're a great rhythm guitarist all around. And how much of an, an impediment is it to not read music? Given the session work that you do, the the touring that you do, right, and the folks that you have to basically jump in and help record an album or help you know perform on a tour, right. There's a joke that says, uh, "How do you get a guitar player to turn down?" Is that put sheet music in front of them? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So you know, I wish I did, and there was a lot of times I, I was going to like kind of study how to do that like go back to reading music and all that stuff, but I just kind of didn't have the patience. Right. But what I did have the patience for was to really learn how to, because um, I can pick anything up really quickly. Like, I, you know, it, it's not unusual for me to learn like whole sets in a day. And, you know, I'm able to kind of retain that stuff. And I don't like to look at notes, but I really have to, I'll write down notes. So I have my own way of writing charts and I can follow lead sheets quite easily, like chord structures. And I know enough. I know what the notes mean rhythmically. You know what I mean? But sight reading is a whole different thing. People just put like those jazz guys and they just put the music in front of me. You can just nail it. Right. I don't have that. I, I really don't. But I, I am very intuitive and I can read number charts. Those Nashville charts, those guys are great. I've, I've, I've known, you know, I've got to know some of these Nashville and Muscle Shoals session guys pretty well. And I don't know if you've ever heard of that. There's number charts. No, have not heard of it. So if you've got a one, a four and a five, for instance, in a song. You know, those are terms for the, for the one chord, the four chord. And so there's sixes and nines and whatever, and they can chart out any song in any key will have those hmm. numbers. So instead of writing a chord chart, you can just write the number chart and it can be in any key. The, the songwriter can put a capo on and be like, we're going to be a half step up now. And it doesn't matter because you're reading the numbers and not the, not the chords. Right. It's a thing. And, and it's almost exclusive in Nashville. It's like the way that people do it. Really? That's the way they do sessions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's really quick, you know, yeah. When they say, okay, we're a half step up or down and people are capoing, are you capoing or are you just able to depends. seamlessly, you know, move around the fretboard? It just depends on what feels right because, you know, there's a lot, I'm not afraid of a capo. In fact, somebody gave me the compliment recently that like, you're not afraid of a capo. That's good with electric guitar because I guess it's kind of rare apparently, hmm. but I, 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 I really like it. But sometimes I'll be in a different position than whoever it is that I'm playing with. And so that is a different voice thing. And other times I'll just go completely without it. And, you know, it just kind of depends on what everybody wants to hear out of, the, out of the amplifier. Right. So how did junior high and high school go for you in Washington in terms of making the decision for you about the direction you wanted to go? And obviously you went into music. Yeah. Uh, but were you ever considering like, you know what, I'm going to give uh, engineering a try or... Or even, you know, art or drawing, because you, you at least had the talent, the core talent for that. Yeah. The drawing thing, I kind of let go of as far as being professional at it earlier than that. Uh, there was a time where I was actually like really kind of, I was meeting comic artists and, and people that drew children's books and things like that. Because I was really into kind of caricatures and sort of, like, you know, that kind of thing. And sort of, I liked, and then later on, I get into sort of like R. Crumb, sort of that 60s underground comic stuff. And just, I just mm. love that stuff. But anyways, I, you know, that ship had kind of sailed and it was just something just for me. And as far as music goes, you know, in high school, uh, so there, there was a couple of questions there. So uh, as far as high school goes, there were sort of two sections. I was playing throughout the whole thing, but the front part of my junior high, high school experience was terrible as far as socially. But it didn't bother me. You know what I mean? It didn't really bother me all that much. I could, you know, I didn't really care mm -hmm. about all that. But 
when the whole, cause we were in Washington and you know, Seattle adjacent. So when the whole Seattle thing happened, I was in high school, you know, I was, you know, ju- uh, sophomore, junior in high school when Nirvana. And, and what years are we talking about here? This is like 90. Well, I graduated in 93. And uh, so, you know, 90, 91, mm-hmm. 92 yeah. it was totally high school. And so when that stuff was hitting, it became the thing. Right. And I was already long haired and wearing flannels and, you know what I mean? Playing mm-hmm. guitar to Les Paul, you know what I mean? Right on. And so all of a sudden I went from the nerd to the ultra super cool kid. <laughs> <laughs> That's a stroke of luck. And we were in the super, super, like, the popular kids, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Which was a trip being in both things, you know? And I remember kind of my, uh, some of my friends, which I never, you know, I never, like, shunned anybody or anything. Like, I wasn't about that. <laughs> but they were like, you, you changed, man. You know, you're hanging out with all those dicks. <laughs> <laughs> but some of those dicks are still my friends right now. <laughs> right on. <laughs> But anyways, it was funny. But yeah, when that all changed over, man, and it kind of came my way, it was so funny because when Pearl Jam hit, oh my God, <laughs> that was a new world, man. No kidding. Um, so yeah, so we would play the assemblies. And- yeah, it really defined, it defined, the whole, it defined the whole era, Nirvana and Pearl Jam. Oh my God, man. It was, it was exciting back then. It was really exciting. I don't know if that'll ever happen again. I think it's just different now for kids, but. When those bands were cracking, you know, and I remember like we would get somebody got like a bootleg of Temple of the Dog before it came out. Mm. And we were listening to that just blown away, man. You know, it's really early on. You know, Temple of the Dog was pretty early on. Uh-huh. And uh, wow, man. Yeah. I remember hearing like uh, Say Hello to Heaven on this like really jacked up tape, cassette tape, you know what I mean? But it was before anybody else heard it. I thought that was really cool. I love that kind of stuff. So anyways, yeah. Yeah, you and I you and I were part of the same I mean, I'm I'm a couple years older than you. I graduated in nineteen ninety, but I had the the good fortune of working in a record store and right, you know, yeah. playing in a band. So I, I kind of had a portal into Pacific Northwest music and grunge in particular in mm-hmm. terms of uh, screaming trees were just right up north of me. Right, yeah. Because, you know, thirty miles north of Yakima. Yeah. Ellensburg. But then, you know, I, I also had an amazing experience of seeing Mud Honey play in Bellingham at I think it was the no it was in the gym at uh, Western Washington University yeah man and Nirvana freaking opened for Mud Honey right and it was just it was a rock the vote four dollar a ticket mm-hmm. thing and 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 you know what I'm speaking to is your point about how kids today just don't have that buzz and excitement about bands that you and I had back then. Yeah. It's not about music. It's about other stuff. Yeah. 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 Uh, but yeah, you. I mean, I just feel like we were part of something really, really special. And, and for me, I really wasn't part of it. I was just an observer, mm-hmm. although I was playing in a band. Yeah. But you were like, that seems like your portal into making all of these connections and amazing collaborations over the years. So what was your first... I know that you became cool because you know you're you're wearing the flannel you're good at guitar you're playing in bands and that type of thing but what was your portal into networking and making the connections that allowed you to play with all these people and form all of these long-lasting decades-long relationships in music yeah um well that happened years and years later you know um and it's kind of seattle's a small town so if you're in it long enough and you're doing it you know just you know on any decent level you know you'll meet somebody because you know I mean? they're just all still around here you know mm-hmm. eddie vetter lives like over there somewhere you know he's just kind of right over there 
But specifically, there was a couple things, and they all happened, you know, completely isolated from one another. Because once I really got studious, much later, kind of in my 30s, I decided to, uh, you know, just throw everything at the wall, just like as many and just work as much as possible and do as many gigs as possible, just in any genre, any area, you know, because I just wanted to meet people and uh, I just wanted to play music with people, mm -hmm, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, 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 and meet cool guys. And then um, there was a couple things. So there was meeting Andrew McKegg, who was in a band called Shuggy at the time, um, but he's kind of a, just a network. He's a wicked, awesome guitarist. But he's also just really personable, and everybody liked Andrew, so everybody kind of just hung out, and he just knew everybody, and he ended up working for uh, the music museum here, the EMP, which is now the Mopop, mm. uh, and, he, and he booked the Triple Door for a while, and, and he just, he's just got connections, you know what I mean? So at, at one point, it's on YouTube, there was an anniversary concert for the Pike Place Market, right? Mm -hmm. And I ended up being in the house band. He, you know, a lot of people like the way I play bass, so I'd end up being the bass player in kind of these kind of house band situations. And on that gig, we brought all these pretty big names, you know, including Sean Smith and, uh, and Stone Gossard and uh, Mike McCready and kind of this endless, you know, and we did these rehearsals and we did the gig and every, you know, it was kind of a lot of stuff. And that's when I met Stone and Mike, you know, and Stone in particular, me and him like just hit it off. I don't know what it was, but like we'd work together now, you know, mm -hmm. there's all, and that all stems from that particular thing, that Pike Place Market thing. Uh, and then Lanigan, that's a whole other long story, but it's a totally roundabout thing. It has nothing to do with Seattle. It comes out of is meeting Isabel Campbell and she's from Scotland. And I met her first through another guy. And then that, you know, I could tell you all about that too, but maybe we should <laughs> get there. But the, you know what I mean? So that was a different avenue, you know? Yeah. Right. And so Isabel, what is her connection to the Pacific Northwest? And, and forgive my ignorance if I should know this, but from Scotland. So do you know who I'm talking about? No. Do you know who Isabel Campbell is? No. Okay. So uh, her and Mark Lanigan made three records together Okay. in the 2000s, and they're excellent. She uh, was originally in a band called Bell and Sebastian, and uh, they're Scottish. And then she went off and did some solo stuff, and she wanted to have this foil, you know, to her. She has a very sweet, very soft voice, mm. you know, and she wanted kind of her Lee Hazelwood to her, you know, Nancy Sinatra and her boyfriend at the time, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, this is the story, suggested Mark Lanigan and she had never heard of him, but she listened to the, some of the stuff, which was all kind of rock oriented at the time. Mm -hmm. And she's like, well, this, his voice is amazing. So it'd be great. So she just contacted him and then they ended up making these records together. And I, she would send the stuff to Mark in the United States. She would be in Scotland. She's got her band in Scotland, and then they would just do the thing remotely. He would send back the, the tracks, right? And so eventually she wanted to meet some American musicians and just be kind of more, she would just like that whole Americana vibe, you know? And after the second record leading into the third record, she had gone to Memphis to this thing called the Folk Alliance, which is a music conference where people play in the sort of takeover hotels, whatever. Uh, and she went to that to meet people and she ended up meeting Calexico and Victoria Williams, which was really cool. Mm. This kind of Tucson, Arizona kind of section of people, you know, kind of musicians from there. Mm -hmm. Nico Case is out there and all that stuff. And uh, she ended up meeting my friend Phil Hurley, who was out there playing with his band. And he's a wicked guitar player. So she was looking for a guitar player. And she's like, hey, would you be kind, you know, would you be keen to play in with me? <laughs> I love it. I play in a, I'll play in a band with Mark Lanigan. Maybe you would like to play our guitarist for the American League. 
of the tour. <laughs> well done. And he didn't, like he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to do it. And we were friends. So he just gave her my phone number. What? And that was it. And then he told me, and I was fully aware. I had the, I had the first record, which I was just like, no way. And at this point in my life and career, I was just over it. It was not going well. And I'd just been plugging away forever and not getting anywhere. And I was just kind of lost. And so it was pretty good timing. And so a month and a half later, she called me from Scotland and it sounded, you know what I mean? It was so <laughs> weird. And we just talked and we, she flew to America and I met her in Tucson, Arizona. And I, we did a recording with Calexico and it was wild because that was the first time I'd really done anything sort of, you know, outside of my own circles, you know, as far as that. Mm -hmm. And then one thing led to another and we made the third record together with Mark and that's when we met. That's when okay. I met Lanigan for the first time. Was it in, in LA recording the record that became Hawk, which was the, th the third of the three uh, Mark Lanigan and Isabel Campbell records. And I had kind of a, you know, quite a bit to do with that, actually, as far as like kind of arrangements and, you know, nice all of that business. And then I ended up in the touring band, blah, blah, blah. I got to know Mark and he invited me to join him. And there you go. And here we are. Yeah. You know, and here we are. Well, thank you for that. Uh, history lesson and this that's the synopsis yeah that this demonstrates <laughs> just how challenging this research project was to get ready for this interview of you jeff because and i think you described yourself at the show at sleight of hand sellers with al johannes as the forrest gump of rock and roll i think that's what you said <laughs> and i was like it's totally true man yeah you just like appear everywhere and you, throughout <laughs> history you could just go back and see <laughs> You know, where's Waldo? You could see uh, Jeff there somewhere. I totally, yeah, it's totally clicked like that, yeah. Recording and touring and, and Isabel Campbell. <laughs> I can't believe that I have not heard those albums. So I need to check those out. Great records. All three of them. The first one, though, I must say in particular, I mean, it's a bona fide classic. Mm -hmm. And Mark's singing on it is really cool because it's a different kind of style. Yeah. You know. Well, Mark's, it's an interesting word, foil, because Mark, his, his style and what he brings to a performance is so singular, so unique. Um, I interviewed Moby a couple of months ago right? Yeah, about his new album, Reprise, and Mark performs with Chris Christofferson on one of their tracks. Mm -hmm. And I, for I forget the name of the track, but it is like so gravelly and so dark. Yeah. That's some serious weight right there. Yeah. It is. It is. It's just really heavy. And you know, and we, we talked about this, Moby and I, about this, what you hear a voice and there are just certain voices that you know have seen some shit. Yeah. And both, you know, Christofferson and Lanigan are, are both those types of voices. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, that's as real as it gets. So in terms of touring with Lanigan, mm -hmm. tell us what that looks like. Because I don't know a lot about touring musicians in terms of the business relationship that is formed there. Mm -hmm. Are you hired to play, you know, say, we'll, we'll pay you for, you know, X amount of dollars for this entire tour, or we'll give you, you know, a percentage of, um, you know, the ticket sales for each of these. No, is no, it I different like from, is it different from musician to musician and band to band or how does that work? And I'm not asking obviously for specific numbers, but just generally. Right. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, it, it is different from band to band, but generally if it's a major touring act or somewhat like that, you know what I mean? Where it's like, you know, on, on that level where it's like a world thing, then no, you get like a, you know, you get kind of a, a weekly rate, hmm. you know, or whatever, whatever you work out beforehand. Cause there's management and things like that. You know, Mark, I think would, would set, you know, certain parameters, you know, and then I would deal with the management people. I never talked to Mark directly about that kind of thing. Yeah. You know? 
Until later, I did ask him for a raise at one point. <laughs> and he didn't even know what I was talking about. Uh, but it worked out in my favor. But <laughs> Never hurts to ask, right? But no, you just kind of work it out. I mean, it's a very blue collar. You know, I consider a touring musician to be very blue collar situation, you know, meaning that it's like, it's not real cushy, you know, like you think it might be like right. real, uh, what do you call it? Like uh, glamorous and all that right. stuff, you know, and it's got its moments. Don't get me wrong. But most of the time, man, it's like, you know, you're down in the trenches, man, especially with old Lanny, you know, <laughs> those were like, right. They were hardcore, you know. And you're not staying at the Four Seasons typically. Eh, you know what, man? I play. I, you know, especially when it was the two of us, and it was kind of a one-off every once in a while. And maybe the maybe the venue or wherever we were playing the festival or whatever it was would be like, you know, kind of hooking us up. I've stayed in some pretty nice places, man. I gotta say, you know what I mean? Nice. But gen, like if it was a tour, like it was a proper, you know, three month tour. You know what I mean? Is dirty old bus and you know, <laughs> you know I mean? they would kind of throw us a bone like you know six weeks in we get like our own room somewhere you know what i mean that's kind of like a okay guys you know <laughs> but i didn't mind that stuff man you know what i mean it's good for i mean you can't mark's gonna do it forever but i don't i don't know if i could do that forever and ever mm -hmm. uh but it was certainly uh i wouldn't trade it for the world man it was really something you know we were we were those tours were were bad. They weren't for the faint of heart, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it really, really, uh, you know, makes a grown-up out of you. <laughs> so your musical career, I'm trying to break your musical career down into different categories. And, you know, you've got mm -hmm. recording, you're a session guitarist, you tour internationally with a number of bands, Indigo Girls, Amy Ray, Mark Lanigan. Mm -hmm. And then you have your solo work and you also have your work with Tecla, your wife, yeah. Tecla Waterfield. So where do you see your highest and best use as a musician, if you even look at it that way, in terms of like where you really want to be spending the majority of your time? Is it writing? Is it collaborating? You know, you do so, so much in music. I'm just trying to figure out where you really want to be as opposed to need to be to pay the bills. Right. Oh man, I try, I've been trying to figure that out forever. You know, I think in, at the base of all that, at least when I very, when I first started working with Isabel and Amy, all of that stuff kind of happened at the same time, you know, a lot of it, you know, around 2010, 2009, 2011, I kind of met all these people and I really felt like I was extremely fortunate because at that point, and even now it's carried over until now. But like I was able to work with really kind of special artists, I felt, you know, and I wasn't ever doing music that I felt was, you know, stuff I didn't like or stuff that I thought was, you know what I mean? It was always kind of very art oriented, which I really appreciated that, you know, mm -hmm. and I appreciated it fully, you know, and I wanted to represent it properly, you know, and all of that stuff. So I really fell into, you know, kind of a, you know, luckily into an area where I was working with very fine musicians and songwriters and singers you know like ex like just i was you know i was always very proud of the work i was doing with whoever it was that happened that i happened to be around you know so that was really a nice thing you know and it kind of spoiled me rotten in a lot of ways you know what i mean mm -hmm. um because even locally i was you know i was i was able to work with some really special songwriters and really you know do some really cool stuff and so as that far as that session thing goes you know and being a hired guy yeah there is some of that, but generally my MO is if I'm in the project, then I'm in the project. Right. I'm not just hired to do a piece of it. I'm an integral part of the structure of that particular, you know, device. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's just kind of the way it is. <laughs> and as I've gotten older and more, you know, into that stuff, then that's kind of the, the thing. So if you want me in the band, I'm happy to do it, but just know that like, you know what I mean? Um, You've got opinions. 
it's not necessarily that you know what I mean because I'm certainly not going to take anything over. I mean, my role, I know my role very well. What in whatever capacity it is, you know what I mean? Yeah. But it just happens that I'll you know end up being sort of integral to it. You know, yeah. It just happens that way. I don't I don't force it on anybody. Certainly, I would never you know act that that way. You know what I mean? It just kind of happens naturally. You know what I mean? Right. And it's it. I think it's beneficial for the for the overall music. You know what I mean? Because I can tell when somebody's just hire to do a gig. Mm -hmm. I can totally tell. And when, and as opposed to them having a relationship with the, with the artist and the band, you know, as a whole, you know, I can, you know, I think that people, even if they don't know, they can tell subconsciously, you know? Right. Yeah. I noticed that about your work as I was preparing for the interview and just seeing these long relationships that you've formed and, you know, the amount of time that you've spent playing and performing with Indigo Girls, for example, and I've probably seen you, I've seen Indigo Girls probably more than any other band live really? over the last couple of decades. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, right on. So I'm, I'm sure I've seen you perform, especially in the Pacific Northwest, if you've played at the zoo or, you know. Well, I've mostly been in Amy's solo band more than the Indigo Girls itself. Although I do sit in with them quite often, especially when they come to the Northwest. And I'll, I'll do a little run and sit in with the girls. But mostly I'm playing with Amy's solo thing, you know, and I've been doing that for a good nine years now yeah i was slated to join the band because a lot of times they just do a duo or a trio um when they tour mm -hmm. but this la in 2020 they were going to tour with a band because a new record out blah 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 and i was going to be the guitar player on that and then of course all that stuff got thwarted right no kidding but uh we'll see about next year we'll see what happens then but i love all those people they're great i mean it's like family you know? mm -hmm. they're really great yeah so what is it about the indigo girls that you enjoy in terms of that musical experience and, and that relationship because i'll preface this question with my observation that indigo girls when they play on stage seem to have so much fun just banter with with the audience and you know talking politics sometimes right yeah and just really settling into the crowd that they're performing for as opposed to someone like willie nelson who i've seen a bunch too who gets up there and talk about workmen like i mean he gets up there and plays his songs and he leaves they do the show yeah right you're lucky to get one <laughs> like interaction that acknowledges that he even knows what city he's in right uh, during the performance nothing thank y'all you know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. yeah. so what is it about right. indigo girls that you like in terms of being on stage with those musicians right well there's a lot you know going on there i think at the the heart of it you know and like i said i work mostly with amy but i know emily pretty well right but just that there, there's such Excellent. I think they're unsung as songwriters. Just excellent songwriters, song craftsmen. You know, I'll put I'll put Amy up there with anybody. I mean, she's a fantastic songwriter. Mm -hmm. And then their general attitude about life is dead on with mine. Just their kind of philosophy about stuff. You know, couldn't be better. You know, it's interesting because they're you know they're the Indigo Girls. They're from the South and they have this different perspective on the South. And I know that like you know we spend most of our time. If I'm touring with Amy and I'm playing with you know, those guys, it's almost exclusively down South. We're playing in Georgia hmm. and North Carolina and, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Florida, you know? Yeah. And I have a great perspective about that stuff, you know? And I think that people that don't travel, you know, have these kind of preconceived notions that are just like, just, I don't know. I just think it's interesting, you know what I mean? Right. To, to be able to live in that world and see the world through those eyes as well. You know, I think it's really great. Right. But um, at, the, at the base of it, they're just unbelievable songwriters. And they also come from a very interesting era, I think. This like sort of like from 87 to about 91 in uh, 
sort of pop music. There was a really cool thing happening right there when Steve Earle was coming out, Chris Whitley, Indigos, REM was happening. You know what I mean? There was this cool period right there that was right before, if you kind of look past all the hair metal and stuff, there was this really cool singer-songwriter thing that was happening right there. uh, Michelle Shocked, uh, uh, Katie Lang, you know, all that cool country stuff that was happening right there with Dwight Yoakam and all that stuff. I I really liked that era. And they kind of, they come out of that. Mm-hmm. And they they personify a lot of that 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 sort of that style of um, folk pop rock songwriting that was happening right there, and I love that stuff. Yeah, Tracy Chapman's another one. Oh, yeah, my gosh, yeah, I saw Tracy play. Uh, she opened for Bob Dylan at the Gorge. Yeah, I think it was like '88, and it was supposed to be the Alarm that opened for Bob Dylan, and they backed out of the, the Alarm was cool too. Yeah, yeah they mm-hmm. they backed out at the last minute. And it was Tracy Chapman. Nobody knew who Tracy Chapman was. Right, yeah. But at the end of that show, it was like, Tracy, was that was better than Bob Dylan. I mean, yeah, it was uh, fantastic. She was great. But- um, Hungry. You know, your, your comments about the South are interesting, because I used to live in Houston, Texas. I grew up in Washington, spent some time in Texas, came back, and I've traveled throughout the South. And I think there, there are some misconceptions and tropes, I don't know if that's what you would call them, about the South that are, you know, they're, they're founded in some- degree of truth. Oh, absolutely. But there's also as is any stereotype. Right, right, right. right. And, <laughs> but but there's but there's also something that's unfair and missing from that exactly. analysis because if you look at what's happening in Georgia right now, I mean the fact that it flipped to a blue state just kind of remarkably like what how, how did that happen? Right. When you look at the makeup of any folks that are that are part of a southern state, you're going to have you know maybe a sixty forty split at worst in terms of politics. Yeah, but putting aside politics, you know, you have a lot of important music that is coming out of southern states like Georgia and Texas, and of course uh, Tennessee, and arguably the most important music. Right. Right. Arguably. Yeah. And I know you have, I, I've listened to other interviews that you've done, and I know that you have a lot of respect for Southern musicians like Allman Brothers and Leonard Skinner. And so, I mean, that's an important part of our musical history. And don't forget the soul stuff. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like the, the stacks. And I mean, Motown was out of Detroit, but, you know, Memphis and, 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 uh, and uh, yeah, I don't know, that whole, that whole area. And the blues and Muscle Shoals. And yeah. Yeah. Muscle Shoals is a big deal. Yeah. Right. So Wilson Pickett. This has been fun to, to digress. I don't even know what got us to this, <laughs> what to this point. <laughs> but it, it's and I think I started off asking you what you enjoy about playing with Indigo Girls, and that led you to the South, obviously, because that's where they yeah. came from. Yeah, yeah. It's just an interesting perspective to see it through the eyes of uh, you know of of that of that uh, scene because mm-hmm. they are a scene. The Indigo Girls are a scene, and they have very loyal fans. Right. No doubt about that. There, that is the truth. <laughs> As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place. Our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com slash newsletter to join. It's not fancy. Just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Now, back to the interview. So I watched a little bit of It's So Easy and Other Lies, the Duff McKagan documentary. Oh, yeah, and man. Yeah. I saw you. I mean, you're right up there at the beginning. You're there in, in the documentary playing with Duff on stage. And how did that collaboration start? And when did you meet Duff? <laughs> 
Oh, man. Duff was just hovering around because, you know, he lives out here. He splits time between uh, Seattle and L.A. because he's from here, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was Nikki Six, you know. There's a, there's a long history. <laughs> but Duff, man, he is cool, man. He is so just cool. You know, like classically rock and roll, punk rock cool, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was just kind of around, man. I was just always in awe, you know, because he would just be around. You know, like, whoa, dude, that's Duff McKagan. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I was doing stuff, you know. I was just kind of around. And I think just, you know, he kind of, Duff is cool, and Mike's the same way. Mike McCready's the same way. They're like, they really uh, are in it. You know, they're really, they're looking for people. They're in the scene, participating, you know. Certainly back then, this is like, you know, whatever, you know, sort of early 2000s into the early 2010s. And they're at the clubs, and they're looking at bands, and you know what I mean? They really, and if they like somebody, they'll really help them out, you know. And Duff is totally like that, you know. And so, uh, how did that thing happen? There was a bunch of stuff that was just kind of like these little one-offs that people would put together as kind of like a collaborative gig, and they were coming, you know, and sometimes there'd be a charity involved and whatever. There was a lot of that kind of stuff. And we were sort of both on those things at certain different times, or maybe, you know, not really ever the same time, but we were just swimming in that same deal. And I remember getting a phone call from somebody going, hey, man, I just gave, Duff called me and he asked for your number, so... That happened. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) rad. And then one morning, really early, I got a phone call and it was a number I didn't recognize. And I was like, oh, and I was asleep. It was like 9 30. I had to sleep in, right? And uh, hey, uh, this is Duff McKagan. I was like, uh, give me give me a second. (laughs) I was like, you know, I had to wake up and hello. And he had just written the book. I, I can't remember if it had come out. I don't think it had come out yet, but it was being published and blah, blah, blah. And he told me about this whole idea about how he wanted to do a show. He wanted to read from the book that exactly what it ended up coming out. And he's like, I'd like you to be a, a, a part of it. And I'm just like, dude, wow, really? That's incredible. Because we'd never really played before. We haven't really met properly before. Um, I think we talked once or twice. Um, but so when I got to know Duff... I went to his house, me and Jeff Rouse, the bass player in Loaded, who I knew a little bit too at the time, and I still do, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but we went to Duff's house and he read his life story in front of us while we played guitars and tr- like just kind of worked out that whole thing. Okay, maybe this song would go here, right? Wow. And so I'm getting to know this guy in his living room, telling me his life story, like officially, you know what I mean? Jeez. It was wild, man. Really, really cool. <laughs> and he was just so gracious. How long did that take? Well, it was a year and a half process, like the whole thing, because we did a show that wasn't filmed uh, at the Moore Theater. That was, uh, you know, kind of a different thing, but the same idea, you know. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, so that went well, and everybody thought it was cool. It was just an interesting, you know, idea. And man, uh, that was awesome. And then they're like, okay, we're going to make a movie. And they got the thing together, and there's that whole thing, you know, yeah. happened. And we did two nights. Uh, at the Paramount that that was put together from. And I got to learn a whole lot about, you know, how those concert films are made and, you know. Mm -hmm. And it was just, it was, wow, what a treat. You know, the rehearsals were great. You know, the band was great. Everything about that period was just, it was just like lofty. That was when I was just kind of floating around because I was also touring with Mark at that time. And yeah, that was, those were heady days. I was feeling really good about everything. Right. I still do, but it was a particularly good time when that was filmed. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I remember it really well, Yeah. Very fortunate. Based upon your history and the history of other musicians I've interviewed, it sounds like there's really no way to manufacture a trajectory in music. It's 100% completely organic in terms of the people you meet, the strokes of luck, of 
who decides to pick up the phone and take a chance on you at any given moment. And yeah, you know, once you, but I would imagine once you're in, once it goes really well for an, an artist like Duff or Mark, that that really just snowballs into other opportunities because there's, like you say, Seattle's a small town. Yeah. And, you know, you need people that you can trust who aren't going to be starstruck and are going to be willing to do the work with focus and talent like you have. Yeah, you know, it's just all, I mean, to, I, I don't know. I don't know anything about anything, but <laughs> I think it's important to always be prepared for anything, right? Right. And, you know, and before I was doing all of this stuff at anything that would be considered a successful level, <laughs> you know, I would just put myself into positions that were extremely uncomfortable because, you know, I think everybody has a certain level of anxiety, you know, talking in public or whatever it might be. You know what I mean? Certainly artists have a tendency to be sort of introverted type people, you know, and then as a musician, your job is to go up on stage with all these lights on you and have everybody be quiet and look at you and listen to you. you know what I mean? So it's totally counterintuitive, you know? Right. So I would put myself in these situations to make myself sort of getting more and more used to being in an uncomfortable situation, both physically sort of in, a, you know, physical groups and then artistically, like taking, you know, a lot of like chances and, and like putting myself, you know, in situations that were like, I don't know if I can pull this off. And then just seeing how it went, you know, and sometimes I pulled it off and sometimes it didn't, but it was always, you know, it's always learning something, mm -hmm. you know. And so when it came time to jump in to some of these, you know, higher end gigs, you know, I felt like I had sort of prepared myself for that, you know, just, you know, just mentally, you know, which is good, you know. And then also just kind of knowing your role, not overplaying, not being a hot shot, but also when it's time to do something, you know what I mean? Lay it down. Right. You know? Mm -hmm. And then back it up, you know, and just kind of knowing where to, you know, you got to know when to hold them, right? Know when to fold them. <laughs> nice Kenny Rogers <laughs> reference there. So throughout the 90s and through the early 2000s, were you actively writing songs that culminated in the, the Last Disguise uh, solo album that you did? I think it was 2006 when that album came out, right? That was 2006. So that was, yeah, that was early on. And that kind of led me into doing other things than being the front man songwriting isn't my strong suit. It's just not. It's, it's like, I can write good music. But lyrics have always been a little bit tough for me. Although I have, you know, a fair amount to say, you know. So that record, you know, was kind of, you know, <laughs> the last disguise. <laughs> you know, uh, I didn't know what I was doing right then. I was just kind of, you know, just seeing, well, I was in bands and stuff. And my brother told me, well, if this next band doesn't work out, you have to go solo. You have to promise me you'll do that because he was just kind of sick of me just keep on going these circles. So I made that record for him, really. Really? Yeah, kind of. You know what I mean? I was like, okay, Gary, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go solo, you know? And then I just found myself just disliking the having to do all the other stuff. You know, if you're the front guy, if you're the main guy, you know what I mean? You got to promote everything you got to do to this and you got to, you know, and like I said, I'm not, I don't really want to be looked at too much. You know what I mean? And I just didn't, I just didn't mm. like it. So I almost kind of just dropped out. And so when I found myself working, you know, that kind of next year into the next year after that, working with these really excellent songwriters and excellent, you know, musicians. And I, I felt, oh, this is my place. So I felt much more comfortable in there, hmm. you know. And then it was, but it made it harder for me to write my own material because I was hanging out with such brilliant, what I, who I felt was brilliant songwriters. Right. That I had no business, you know, you know, doing. I don't quite feel that way now. I feel like I can, you know, I'm going to, I'm working on some solo stuff that I feel really good about. And, you know, I just think that the time is right for that thing. 
but it's never been, at least since then, it hasn't been my focus, you know? Yeah. My focus has been, you know, because I'm good at arranging and I'm good at band leading and stuff like that, you know what I mean? Like putting together the thing and like, you know, kind of, you know, right. orchestrating the thing and then laying in the cut, you know, when it comes down to it, you know, uh, it's my kind of, I love uh, Buddy Miller. He was out of Nashville. I don't know if you guys know who that is, but no, you know, he's, he's one of my heroes. He's kind of like that guy, you know, he, he is that guy. He's extremely successful in doing that particular job. And then he puts out his own records, but he's been the band leader for, uh, for uh, Robert Plant on some of those kind of rootsier stuff that he's done. Oh, okay. Recently, yeah. you know, and he's kind of one of those go-to guys and uh, you know, and you don't know who he is. I love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? that, it's, uh, he just lays, lays it down. It's an interesting role that you've carved out for yourself as, you know, someone who, when you are involved in a project, you're very involved and pulling levers and influencing the final product. It sounds like, mm -hmm. but I think you answered my question, which I asked maybe early on in this interview, maybe 30 minutes ago, where I was asking you about your highest and best use right. in terms of songwriting, performing, and versus supporting a larger project. Mm -hmm. And that makes a lot of sense. But I do want to take issue with something you said. You said, I'm not a songwriter. That's not my strong suit. I have listened to your solo album multiple times preparing for this interview, and I think it's fantastic. Oh, well, thanks, buddy. I'm I'm really glad that I found it and that I found you because I, I'm going to add it to my playlist. There's clearly, you know, I, I'm always listening for influences, and you know, I I hear some influences in there. And tell me if I'm I'm right or wrong, but you know, Nick Drake with the drop D on I think was it the last disguise where you had the it was it the drop D yeah mm -hmm. it's all, it's in D it's in a D or tuning it's, it's just an e D tuning yeah and yeah open tuning. And and there's also like you can just hear some really fun influences like uh, the Black Crows on on some of the more upbeat mm -hmm. uh, songs and and Tom Waits in there too. I mean, there's just it's really fun to kind of pick apart an album like that. But at the end, you realize this is utterly Jeff Fielder, and it's a unique voice, and it's it's your voice, and it's your songs. So I do take issue with your characterization of your songwriting abilities. It's, <laughs> but, you know, speaking of songwriting and solo projects, I know that your project with your wife, Tekla, is not a solo project necessarily, but tell us about that album, how that came together and what your plans are in terms of future projects with your wife and perhaps touring. Yeah. So, um, well, we, so when we met, we met in 2015. Yeah. Wow. It's been a while now. <laughs> uh, we've been married for three years now. And, you know, she's a musician properly and working and all that stuff. And then at the very beginning of our relationship, I almost wanted to keep it separate because I didn't, you know, I just didn't want it to go there for whatever reasons, you know, it might get complicated, blah, 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 but that didn't last very long. And we ended up making a record together. And what's cool about working with Tekla is that she writes excellent songs and she just kind of trusts me to, you know, kind of put them together in a way, you know, so that first record we made together is, is called When the Curtain Falls or just cur Curtain Falls. And it's really electronic. I was just kind of into drum machines and keyboards and, and, and sequencing and stuff like that. And she just kind of let me roll with it. So that record is kind of in that way. And we made another record together that was a bit more organic, a little bit more band-oriented, and then 2020 hit, right? 
and so we didn't put it out. And then we just kind of sat there and waited for, you know, the next shoe to drop, which it was on a daily basis back then. Mm-hmm. And so we had moved into this house a year earlier in 19, about, uh, about March of 19. And I was able to turn this room into a recording studio. Nice. And then when 2020 hit, you know, it was, thank goodness we had this room because we were able to do, uh, you know, really good streaming. I could do sessions out of here. People would send me stuff, remote stuff, and I could just basically do anything, you know. And as it went, I kind of built it up a little bit and we were able to do drums and stuff. And I can play good enough drums to where we made an album during that period, mm-hmm. starting in about April, maybe March or April of 2020, writing the material and then recording it. And then, you know, the whole idea was to get it, you know, once we were in it, was to release it before the election. That was the idea. <laughs> and we did. We were <laughs> able to do all of that work. It was the fastest we've ever made anything. And I played all the instruments, and except for what Tekla did. Right. Except we had one guest. We had Keith Lowe play upright bass, which was amazing. And that record is really cool. And it kind of is going to inform the way, you know, because, you know, it was all done here. And, uh, you know, I was just really proud of that whole thing. It's called Trouble in Time. And it's, you know, anywhere you find music nowadays. Yeah. Trouble in Time by, and I put my name on it. So it was both of us, Tecla Waterfield and Jeff Fielder. And it's, I, I find it a lovely record. You it know? is. It's a great album. It's a great album. If, if you like. Um, Thanks. Cowboy Junkies, which I was a huge fan of Cowboy Junkies back in the day and saw them live. Right. It, you know, the, the melancholy, you know, just the, how comfortable you both are with melancholy mm-hmm. as a vibe in songs. Yeah. But also there's a lot of catchy choruses too that mm-hmm. kind of distinguish this album apart from bands like Cowboy Junkies, which are just pure. I mean, there's almost no pop whatsoever in Cowboy Junkies. It's all melancholy. Right. Yeah. But um, yeah, I really enjoyed it and uh, glad I, I got to listen to it to prepare. Yeah, I think that like people, it, it's it's tough. And I was hoping that this might turn around and it kind of went the other direction. But, you know, everything needs to be really loud now and really in your face and really like dramatic and blah, 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 blah. You know what I mean? And I really felt that we made it, you know, we needed to make a deliberate, quiet, sparse, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. L- laid back statement in all of this chaos, you know? Right. And I was hoping that people might, you know, I don't think it's going to go that way. I think it's going exactly the other way, where everything just to be louder and, and more concussion, you know what I mean? Yeah. Which is a bummer to me. Well, that's one thing I'm really bummed out about. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I think it's an interesting. I think we could use some in, introspection, you know, some like, you know, in, you know, some reflection, maybe. That would be nice. A little bit of self awareness would be good. I, I agree. I, I heard. Um, who, am I to, who am I to say? I heard Bo Burnham <laughs> talking about this subject uh, in an interview recently. And Bo Burnham is the comedian who put out that, that concert album that he recorded in the, the pandemic. Very aware. Yeah, it's great. He talked about this concept of everybody wanting to express an opinion as loudly as possible about every subject possible. Yeah. And to be heard right. in, in every possible you know, social media platform and just the noise that it creates. Right. I can see why, and, and this is what's so refreshing about albums like uh, Trouble in Time is, you know, that minimalism mm-hmm. of just like settling into being comfortable with quiet and pause and, you know, just what's in between the lines sometimes is just as important or more important as the lines themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I like that guy that you're talking about, Bo. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I just think that there needs to be kind of a balance. You know, if everybody's screaming at each other all the time, 
then nobody gets hurt, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so it just, I don't know. I just wish there, there was a bit more, you know, understanding. And there, I think there might be. I just think that what we're kind of exposed to, you know, is uh, is just it's just chaotic, you know, and I don't think that's good for us as a as a species, right? Yeah. But again, who am I to say? <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> well, I think you yeah. know, I think what's happening <laughs> right now with bringing music back and bringing live performance back safely with Vax only performances, like we saw at Sleight of Hand Sellers the other night, and. I got to see you and Al Johannes perform live. That was fantastic. It was cool. Yeah. But, you know, I felt a renewed sense of hope when I was there, uh, even though I was still kind of freaked out, <laughs> just like right, yeah. looking around. I know this is Vax only, but, but just bringing all these people together, seeing live music. And what happens when you do that, for me anyway, is all of the background, all of the noise of politics and bullshit just sort of disappears. Right. And for a short period of time, you're just in the exact same space as a bunch of other people who have way different opinions than you do, but you're there experiencing this, this collective experience, a shared experience. Right. Um, and to see you up there with your two SGs, talk about minimalism. <laughs> it's just you and two SGs. <laughs> what a special performance that was. And Thanks, man. How did that come together anyway? How did you get invited to perform at Sleight of Hand Sellers? Oh, it was pretty, it was pretty simple. I just got a, I got a text, I think, from this guy, Stefo, who uh, I, I'm assuming is kind of Alan's guy. He just books his stuff or I don't even know, really. I'd met him, you know, playing with Lanigan. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Alan and, and Mark go way, way back. They make all his records together and all that stuff, you know, and I've known Alan for a really long time now. Right. I don't know. I, I guess they just were like, hey, we're going to do this gig. You want to open? I mean, it was that simple. And I was like, oh, hell yeah. There were originally going to be two <laughs> gigs. Well, it was just the one. It ended up for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. I don't know. The, the second one got um, canceled for, you know, every, everything's getting canceled. Who knows? You know what I mean? But luckily that one stayed. And, um, you know, and I didn't really talk to him at all after that until the day of. And I just had to, you know, work out my set, mm -hmm. which I spent a week doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, you know, it went great. It was, it, it was, it was inspiring for me too. You know, absolutely. It was great. It was, a, it was a new, a new day. Yeah. Well, I mean, going back to your frontman comments, I, I, I really think that you have the voice, you have the songwriting skills, you have the performance skills to be the frontman, but I totally respect your comfort zone to just, you know, maybe that's not what you're going to aspire to do over the next 10 years, as much as be part of a, you know, bigger collaboration with other bands. But yeah, it was really fun to see you perform. Well, thanks. I think it might, it could be. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what the future holds exactly. I want to be more in a producer role, uh, you know, coming up here. But, um, you know, I think when I made uh, Last Disguise back then, it was on the, you know, on the beginning of all of this stuff that leads us to now. You know what I mean? Right. And so now it's just kind of a different position and different experience. You know what I mean? And, you know, I can feel probably really good about it now. You know, I mean, that's a, you know, it's a whole lifetime worth of experience between, between then and now. Um, you know, done a lot of stuff. So, yeah, you know, with that in mind, you know, and I always had a kind of an identity crisis, you know, as far as not a crisis, but you know, it was like exactly who do I want to be musically? You know, some most artists really that are successful have a very distinct voice and they go this way and you know their music right away. 
You know, and I don't really, I never really had that. You know what I mean? I wanted to do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And the bands I was in, you know, leading up to that solo record were kind of all over the place. You know, we would do, you know, this kind of music and that kind of music. And it was just like confusing for people, I think, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's why it was so good to be able to play with Mark, because I love that kind of darker rock style of music. And then on the flip side, playing with Amy, which is way more, you know, Americana, roots, acoustic oriented, you know. Mm -hmm. And it, being able to do both of those things, you know, was really, it made my insides good you know that whole time do you also play mandolin on her albums yeah she plays mandolin but i do play mandolin yes she actually forced me to play mandolin she's the reason i'm playing mandolin <laughs> that's funny <laughs> so i got one and i figured it out I, I bought a mandolin recently and i'm i'm just uh still trying to learn it myself it's a uh, well i guess I, no, it's upside down so it's a little weird yeah know? i mean once you know i mean once you know guitar and you understand how the strings are arranged it's a little easier to figure out but i the size of my fingers is just really difficult. I know, it's so tiny. <laughs> like a little midget guitar. It's weird that such a big sound comes from such a tiny instrument. Yeah. When you hear it recorded, it's just like, yeah, this is a big sound. So did I read correctly that you were involved in scoring the film Hickok? Yeah. So how did how'd you know that? That's weird. Oh, I, I don't know where I saw that. I, I think I looked you up on IMDb and I saw Music By. So how did that come together? Ah, man, that's crazy. That's up there. Well, it's really, it was Andrew Jocelyn that, you know, got the, the credit for, you know, scoring that record. But he, and so it was his gig. Andrew Jocelyn's a, a violinist, virtuoso, uh, and he does everybody's string arrangements around here. In fact, he did the string arrangements on uh, Imitations at Lanigan Record. And like I said, it's kind of a small town. And it also, he's uh, the, the leader of the quartet in the Duff movie, the, the mm, It's So Easy. Okay. The guy playing violin there. Yeah. So anyways, he was doing, you know, movie scores and there's this Western, uh, it's got Chris Christopherson in it. Pretty neat, you know? And so anyway, he just brought me over and I just played a bunch of banjo and dobro and slide guitar and stuff like that. And, uh, he'd give me a key and a tempo and then I would just improvise these kind of long things, you know? And most of them made it in as pieces in the thing. And then he took what I did, chopped it up, and made his own arrangement out of them, and then played strings on top of it. And it ended up in a movie. It's pretty rad. It's pretty neat. Yeah. Is that a direction that you are open to going in the future in terms of, you know, more oh, man. musical side gigs? That would be awesome. But, uh, you know what I mean? I mean, it's just like anything else. You kind of need the connections. And uh, I, would, I would do that all the time. Because that stuff is pretty, well, I don't want to say it's easy, um, but, you know, I have the means to do it here. I have every instrument, you know, and the stuff that I can't play, I can I can farm out pretty easily, you know what I mean? So, yeah, if anybody wants a score, let me know, man, because I can hook it up. And we did some stuff recently where it was just, uh, there's a friend of mine, Ryan Burns, he's a great keyboard player, and he got hooked up with something, some distributor thing where you can just send them random tracks and they'll try to place them, you know, these instrumental things, you know, because every reality TV show uses these, you know, these kind of random things. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were able to crank out like eight of them in a day, you know, and I was mm. like, man, if we, if this was a thing, oh my gosh, it'd be amazing <laughs> uh, because we, we find it pretty, pretty easy just to come up with these sort of instrumental things and it can be, you know, oh, let's make it a, a moody vibe or a dark vibe or a happy vibe, you know what I mean? And we just do them and they come out really well, you know? That's awesome. But yeah, I would like to do that. But mostly I kind of just want to do cool records. Yeah. You know, I want to do things that kind of mean something, but I would do uh, any sort of placement stuff any day to make the ends meet. Right. So 
What is the main challenge as you see it right now today in 2021 for musicians? And, and we have the obvious one, which is the pandemic and you know the shutdown of venues and the difficulty in bringing people out to see live music. But aside from the pandemic, what are the challenges for folks wanting to get into music and maybe thinking they want to make a career of it in terms of making a living and retirement and just the logistics of surviving as a musician? (laughs) Retirement. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know, man. I mean, you can't separate it. You can't separate it out of of the climate we're in as far as all of that stuff. Right. Because it's impossible to make long-term plans. I have no idea where this is going to go. I, a year ago, I kind of was able to sort of predict things as they were coming, and I was right a lot of the time, you know. But now I have no idea, man, how this is going to shake out. Mm. It's so weird. And it's almost as if it's specifically targeted to musicians, isn't it? Yeah. You know, and lighting guys and, and just like touring and all of that stuff. It's just like so, it's just so weird that it's like the music industry and concerts in general, like live performance in general, is just like, man, really taking the hit on this thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, it just is what it is, you know? As well as being an impossible way of life and a really difficult thing to get into and a really difficult thing to keep going, you know? Because of, you know, there's a myriad of reasons, you know, taste change. You know, I mean, who plays guitar, right? <laughs> I mean, everybody used to play guitar. I think people still do play guitar, but like, you know what I mean? It's just like, I don't know, you know, because it takes so much sort of focus and, and uh, I don't know. There's a myriad of challenges. Yeah, I don't e- I talked to a, a sort of a Zoom meeting of students recently, you know, and uh, they were asking me for advice. And I'm just like, man, I used to be able to give pretty good advice. I don't know anymore. I just don't know <laughs> how it's going to go. I think that like recording is good. And kind of getting to know your way around uh, some recording softwares, mm-hmm. you know, which I think is, you know, certainly where we're headed as far as that kind of thing goes. I think that there hopefully might be a resurgence in sort of the album, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't know, though. I don't see any really evidence of that. I'm just kind of like wishful thinking. But, you know what I mean, where people would listen to a piece of music from front to back, you know, right. like the Dark Side of the Moon or Sgt. Pepper or something like that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I just don't know, man. <laughs> well, at least you're being honest. I, I don't. I think if you said you did know, everybody would be a little bit skeptical. Nobody knows anything. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's it's you know sad. It's sad <laughs> to think about music in terms of career opportunities for young people. But I think young people are so adaptable to changing circumstances. I I can see. I think live live gigs and live performances are going to like we're seeing with the Seahawks, you know, just requiring masks, requiring vax, you know, vaccination proof, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. I can see music venues doing the same thing. They're already starting to do it, and maybe that's the first step toward normalizing going back to see live music again. And then masks become part of the experience, and so does you know vaccination requirement, and yeah, and then we can get back to hopefully some semblance of normal in in terms of what it's like to yeah exist as a musician. I think again, I don't know anything, but I think that by the time we get to a normal, nobody's going to remember what normal was like. <laughs> <laughs> I swear. Everybody's going to be like, what normal are you talking What Which normal are you talking about? You know what I mean? Everybody's going to have their own definition right. of what normal is. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Because it's going to take a minute, man, I think. 
But I don't know. You know, I, I'm pretty optimistic. You know, and one thing about younger people is uh, uh, me and Tecla put a band together for some stuff that we're going to do and, and this next recording that we're going to do. And they're all in their 20s. And it's kind of like everything else. You know, people have these sort of general you know, uh, assumptions about things, you know, and everybody's, I don't know, not everybody, but like a lot of older people are kind of like, oh, the new generation, this and that, blah, blah, blah. I sound like some old codger, man. The kids are just fine. The kids are all right. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. You know, they, they're, and awesome. These musicians are amazing. You know what I mean? And they totally get it. You know, there's no like big, huge disconnect and all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. I just find that just ridiculous. You know, these kids are going to be just fine. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I agree with you. And I've talked I've talked to a lot of a lot of my guests who are our age. I've talked to about that concept of just the trash talking of younger generations that they don't have a work ethic and Yeah. It's just all baloney, man. It is. And I, I think what they have is they have a value system that is way more way more evolved and appropriate than right. the sort of entrenched values that Oh, you, you know, for instance, you know, I'm a trial lawyer by day and you know, it was, you know, always the, you know, my, the, my boss telling me you need to be the first one there, the last one to leave. You know, I don't care if you're working when you're here, it's, it's about, you know, optics. And, you know, I think what younger people are telling us is they're willing to put in hard work, but not for optics reasons. They want to be practical and, you know, give me eight hours of work. And if I can get it done in six hours, I'm going to get it done in six hours. And right. I'm not going to pretend that I'm working for the last two. I love that value system in terms of their sensitivities and their cultural sensitivities. I'm all about that. So I like younger people. Yeah, me too. It's just like, you know, hey, man, you know, we made all this stuff up in the first place. People forget that. You know what I mean? Right. Human beings made all this shit up. You know what I mean? <laughs> so what's the problem in switching it up a little bit? You know what I mean? Right. Because it's all, you know, it's just, we made it all up. Yeah. All of, all of it. So true. You know? <laughs> so, you know, you know, I think that in essence, I think that a lot of things are, you know, everybody's got an opinion and some things get overstated and overblown over here and over there or whatever, you know. But in essence, the idea is just like, I call bullshit. I call bullshit on that thing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And if nobody ever did that, where would we be? You know what I mean? <laughs> right. The, the whole moving this thing forward. You know, it's happening a little fast now, which is, you know, I think it's all right, man. I just think that people need to just to chill out, honey bunny. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That'll be the quote at the beginning of your podcast, by the way. <laughs> people need to chill out, honey bunny. <laughs> but I, I would be remiss. We're, we're going to wrap things up here. Cool. But I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about your go-to electric guitar or guitars and your go-to acoustics in terms of your home what's that guitar that you pick up most of the time electric and acoustic well i have a fair amount of guitars um, i'm trying to see what's around here with an acoustic guitar because i generally like old stuff vintage things you know mm -hmm. i just do you know i like the way they feel however with acoustic guitars for whatever reason i prefer newer ones and i don't exactly know why that is but i have a martin kind of a modern it's probably a 2012 uh, om21 and it's a fantastic acoustic guitar i just love it i got it specifically because i had a martin d28 for for years and it was just too boomy and it needed to record i needed something that recorded really really well you know just every time just easy and this was the one that i ended with and it's great and i don't need a bunch of acoustic guitars you know mm -hmm. i like i have a lot of guitars but they all are very specific they all do different things 
And then, so my main guitar for years and years and years, which I didn't even have another one, was this Les Paul that I got when I was when I was thirteen when we first moved to Washington. It's just a Les Paul standard from nineteen eighty eight. And uh, that's kind of my, it was considered my sort of main guitar until I started buying guitars. <laughs> but now that SD that you mentioned, I could show it to you really quick. Let me go grab it. If I had a main ride, it would probably be this this special. It's a '64, and it's real checked up. Wow, it's a good looking guitar, you know. '64, nice. And it's just awesome. I love it. That's a beautiful guitar, and I, you know, it's it's a, it's a, it was a great find. Mm -hmm. When in doubt, I'll play that. It just, you know, it tends to be. It's not my main thing, but it's just like it always works. It works with anything. I can play it on any style of music. It's rad. It stays in tune. Mm -hmm. It's perfectly intonated, and it's a dope guitar. It's just cool, right? Uh, but then a lot of times I'll play a Telecaster because it calls for a Telecaster, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so if I were to choose two, it'd be the 64 SG and then the uh, the Telecaster over there, which is just kind of a regular, nothing special, 52 reissue. Right. That's beat up because I beat it up, you know? It's relic for real, you know? <laughs> yeah. I think I saw you playing the Tele on the Emerald City Guitars video. Oh, yeah. That was when they demoing their guitars, yeah. I was going to, I was trying to do that for a minute, like be a guitar demo guy. Uh, and then 2020, just 2020 threw a wrench in everything, you know, so. Yeah. I haven't done anything like that since then. But those guys are great down there, man. And then Real City Guitars, shout out. Yeah. Jay Boone, Trevor Boone. I follow him on Instagram, but I've, I've never been in. Amazing place. It's like a museum. Yeah. More than a store. Yeah. It's like a guitar museum. Yeah. It's dangerous. I, I just can't go in there with a credit card. I'd have to leave all of my, my financial, uh, you know, yeah. abilities well, to yeah. buy. He's just behind as I walked into that place. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know. <laughs> well, but it's uh, cool. yeah. Jeff, it has been so fun to talk to you. Good. And it's been a, a history lesson, but also a great way to get to know someone who's just part of the fabric of Pacific Northwest music over the last several decades. So thanks for sharing your story. Thank you, sir. A pleasure. Absolutely. Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path.